Since the COVID era began, fear-mongering and warmongering about China has been on the rise. Though there has been some truth to some of the points raised, there has also been a lot of disinformation and war propaganda thrown at the public, particularly, particularly in the West, both before COVID and since. But consistently, uh, consistently, the narrative has been that this is a power struggle of nation state versus nation state. And this narrative, of course, fails to account for the elite influencers and transnational power structures that unite China and the West behind the scenes. And because this critical aspect of the situation is hardly ever discussed, it's not common knowledge at all, and many are completely unaware that the key factions of the powers of that be of U.S. empire overlap considerably with the powers that be in China. These related power factions in both countries are part of a larger transnational elite that we've also seen a lot more of in the COVID era, uh, as they've been at, at the forefront uh, of promoting global governance, the fourth industrial revolution, and the so-called Great Reset. So in order to really understand this transnational effort to enact these agendas globally, uh, we must examine the power structures driving them uh, behind the guise of countries that we are told are antagonists and are to some degree, but also share a lot more than the public has been led to believe. So joining me today to discuss the realities at work here is actually the very person whose work first opened my eyes to them several years ago, James Corbett of The Corbett Report. For those not familiar with James's work, several years ago, he released a documentary called China and the New World Order that I found incredibly revealing. And since then, he's had a lot more to say on the topic in subsequent interviews and in writing. So without further ado, hey, James, thank you for joining me today. Thank you for having me on, uh, Whitney. This is an incredibly important topic that doesn't get enough attention. When it does, I don't think it's explored in the right way. So hopefully we can uh, we can correct some of that today. Yeah, I think we uh, both definitely agree on that. So I think a good way to start off is to look at this uh, Financial Times article that came out a few uh, years ago that I think is a good way to sort of uh, broach this subject with, uh, I guess, uh, the uninitiated, um, for, for lack of a better term. So let me pull up uh, this article quickly here. So, oh, sorry. So this is from the Financial Times. It's called the US, China and Wall Street's new man in the middle. Uh, of course, there was a man in the middle before him. Uh, this is uh, an article largely about Stephen Schwartzman, uh, but also about a class of um, individuals uh, that are basically called the New China Whisperers. Um, and if you're not familiar with uh, Stephen Schwartzman and Blackstone Capital, uh, you should be. They own uh, probably uh, close to half of, of the United States, what BlackRock doesn't own, Blackstone owns. Um, but I highlighted a few excerpts here. Uh, so I'll just read from that really briefly and then let you take it from there, James. So it says in, in his offices, a short walk from, uh, I'll probably butcher the pronunciation, so uh, from the uh, Chinese Communist Party's leadership compound in central Beijing, uh, Vice Premier Liu He uh, maintains a large collection of photos taken with foreign VIPs. Uh, he's, you know, uh, Xi, Xi Jinping's most trusted economic advisor, blah, blah, blah. Uh, but uh, people add that one picture in Mr. Liu's collection is always on display. It shows the vice premier engrossed in conversation with Henry Kissinger. Few statesmen are as revered in Beijing as Mr. Kissinger, who is Richard Nixon's national security advisor and secretary of state, masterminded the U.S. and China's reproachment at a time when Mr. Xi and Mr. Liu were teenagers trying to survive the Cultural Revolution. Dr. Kissinger is a foreign policy deity in Beijing, says Drew Thompson, a former 
U.S. Department, uh, Defense Department official. He has always had a sympathetic ear in Beijing and Chinese leaders have continually sought to use his celebrity and access uh, <clears throat> to influence Washington. Okay, so um, people that have been uh, sort of in either one of the two echo chambers that we hear a lot about China and media are either on the left or the right, uh, especially on the left, right, which, uh, you know, there, there tends to be a lot of, uh, I guess, xenophilia uh, these days, um, you know, maybe like, well, we know Henry Kissinger's a war criminal, but, uh, whoa, what's he doing there? Uh, <laughs> uh, right? So um, I think maybe a good place to start is explain, um, you know, uh, Kissinger's role in the opening up of China, uh, who Kissinger is connected to in terms of this transnational elite and how this sort of developed. If you want to go farther back in time, of course, that's uh, fine, but how that sort of shaped the, the China of today and this power structure that we'll be exploring in this video. All right. Well, that's quite the setup. And yes, it is extremely important to note that these connections didn't just spontaneously appear and they didn't just, China didn't just start rising yesterday. This has been a decades long, half century long now process that has been deliberately put in place to put China in the position that it is in today. And we cannot understand anything about what's going on today unless we understand that. So with a subject this broad, this uh, a scope of, uh, of inquiry this broad, it is impossible to do anything more than scrape the surface in a conversation like this. So uh, at the risk of making any of my listeners in your audience roll their eyes, because this is about the 8,000th time I've mentioned it, but I will, of course, direct people back to my episode 297 on China and the New World Order. Um, it was the seminal work that uh, I did several years now that, that got me started into this process of researching this. And uh, sometimes I surprise myself. I went back and re-listened to it for the first time in several years recently, and just it struck me afresh how much information is in that episode. I really did jam-pack it with data. But the long, 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 long story short is that, yes, uh, Nixon is often credited with re-establishing American diplomatic relations with uh, Mao and China, but it was not Nixon who went to China, it was Kissinger in a series of meetings that were uh, preparatory to Nixon's visit uh, in 1971. Um, uh, uh, Kissinger had preceded him the previous year and basically opened up the door. And as everyone admits, it was even, it used to be, I haven't checked recently, but it even used to be in Kissinger's Wikipedia profile. Kissinger was always understood to be a, an emissary of the Rockefeller family. He was discovered by the Rockefellers uh, when he was director of a Council on Foreign Relations study group on nuclear weapons back in the 1950s. And from that time, he was uh, essentially in the employ, one way or another, of the Rockefeller family, working closely with uh, Nelson and with David. And it was definitely in Rockefeller family interests to open China in a specific way. And that's because Rockefeller family interests in China date back as over a century, um, specifically Rockefeller medical um, interest in China um, was there in the early 20th century and investments have continued. Uh, the Rockefeller uh, Foundation brags about its long rich history with China, um, which gives you a sense that this, again, this didn't just start yesterday. This isn't just some process that happened. And you could, as you say, you could go back much further than Nixon going to China in 1970. You could go back to um, way back in the, the early 19 teens and 20s, where you started the establishment of Rockefeller Foundation in China, 
Um, you had Yale in China, which was a series, Yale Divinity School and other branches of Yale that were operating in China that, oh, for example, employed a certain young man by the name of Mao to become the editor of one of its journals to begin thought reorientation towards what ultimately became the communist revolution there. Yes, Mao was Yale. Um, it, it, there are other surprising things that come up. In fact, uh, if you... Um, if you go into the history of Blackstone Group, as you brought up there, which is absolutely relevant to what's going on today, as you say, um, an incredibly important uh, asset manager in the new economic world order, um, go back to 2013 when aforesaid Stephen Schwartzman um, started a scholarship program, an international scholarship program in China, endowing it with $300 million to emulate yeah. the Rhodes Scholarship <laughs> program, which I, I'm sure your informed listeners will know all about, but um, that's the type of ties that uh, Blackstone have had with China for a very long time. Blackstone, of course, a spinoff from Black uh, Rock, um, spun off from BlackRock. It started in BlackRock in 1988 as basically the investment management arm of BlackRock, um, spun off as its own separate company in 1994. Um, BlackRock with close ties to AIG, um, American International Group, which had invested over a billion dollars in it back in the 1990s. And AIG was, of course, the American International Group, which started as the Asiatic American Underwriters in Shanghai in 1919 by one Cornelius Vanderstar, who is an incredibly important character in the old economic world order, I suppose. Um, and AIG then went on to become a key operational unit, as it were, of the OSS, the forerunner to the CIA in World War II, when the OSS began its own insurance unit, which made use of the extensive records that AIG at that time had on various business operations in China. Um, that relationship continued to the point where Cornelius Vanderstar's heir, protege, Maurice Hammer and Hank Greenberg, in the 1990s was actually being considered to become director of central intelligence. George Tenet ended up getting the spot, but the fact that uh, Greenberg was in the running should tell you something about AIG and its various operations in drug running and other things over the years through Coral Re. There's an incredibly rich tapestry that does tie yeah. into the China yeah. nexus through the but financial um, aspects of this that deserves a hundred hours of investigation in and of itself. It's honestly enormous. Um, I sort of stumbled upon this in my own way by doing research for my Epstein book that comes out early next year because a lot of the money flows there. You know, I'm tracing like the Epstein network um, back to its origins uh, long, long, long before Epstein was really even part of it. Um, and the, the, the China um, ties in terms of financial flows and things like that are really considerable. And honestly, I found them uh, surprising, even though I was familiar with your work, but it just speaks to the uh, interconnectedness, um, uh, specifically in places like Shanghai and, and Hong Kong, uh, that these networks uh, have had for a long time. And, it, you know, it just uh, serves to remind people that Wall Street, yeah, it's treated like an entity based in New York, which it is to a big extent, I guess you could say in, in some sense, right? Uh, but it's really a transnational beast. It's a business, uh, you know, and it, it doesn't really respect uh, national sovereignty or anything like that. You know, these are people not loyal to a particular nation. They're loyal to Wall Street, um, you know, as a whole. Uh, but what you were saying about Blackstone, I actually have some um, 
some things I wanted to uh, bring up um, <clears throat> related to that, specifically Schwartzman scholars, um, which you uh, touched on. So just give me one uh, moment and I will write. <clears throat> so people may have heard recently about the uh, Evergrande uh, debt, uh, uh, <laughs> I don't want to swear, um, <laughs> cluster bleep, I don't know, <laughs> um, um, debt implosion uh, that Bloomberg, of course, which is funny that it's Bloomberg, but they assure us will be a uh, won't spread beyond China and will be a contained uh, event. We'll see if that's actually true. Um, but these are some of the firms that was mentioning, you know, that were mentioned as suffering um, from Evergrande, which is, uh, I believe, like the largest residential or like building uh, can, uh, developer in China. Um, and among these, of course, is Blackstone Group. Uh, you also have Apollo Global Management of uh, Leon Black fame. Uh, and also the Carlyle Group for people that are familiar with them. You know, these are just some of the um, entities heavily in, invested in China. And this is just in one company, uh, right? So like a lot of these uh, big Chinese firms have a lot of uh, ties to these, these Wall Street um, <clears throat> asset management companies. Um, and as you said earlier, Schwartzman Scholars is, is here. It's just, they all look so nice. Um, shaping the future of global affairs. It's framed very much as this is the new global economy. China is an integral part of that, as it has a uh, Steve himself says down here, those who will lead the future must understand China today. Um, but what I found particularly telling about it um, in terms of this transnational uh, group that's so interested and, and what you alluded to as um, sort of uh, preparing China to take the helm of uh, the new global economy um, are, are the people, you know, working to do this. And obviously Steve Schwartzman um, is one of them, but here you have some of the donors, the people he works with to affect that. Uh, you have BP, uh, you have uh, Masayoshi Sun, who of course is of SoftBank fame, uh, but you also have, uh, which is some, some groups that I found interesting, um, Delta Airlines, but also Glencore, who I believe the 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 owner main shareholder of that is uh, Nat Rothschild, and then you have a uh, Yad uh, Hanadiv, which people may not be familiar with, but that is actually the Rothschild uh, Family Philanthropic Foundation, based in Israel. And then uh, you have a, another foundation there, the uh, Matsepe Foundation, I guess it's pronounced. Uh, that was the uh, first foundation on the African continent, oh, sorry, uh, to join the Giving Pledge, started by Bill and Melinda Gates and, and Warren Buffett. So I uh, don't know if you'd uh, like to continue, sorry. <laughs> uh, no, I think that does speak to the interrelated corporate nature of what's gone on. And that is a large section of what I was trying to deal with in my China and the New World Order episode, where I pointed out that the groundwork, the fin international financial architecture for what became the R&D boom in the 1990s and the massive investment that started flooding into China in the 1990s was laid in a meeting at, of course, um, David Rockefeller's uh, One Manhattan Plaza or whatever it was called back in the day when he was um, the kingpin of Chase back in 1980, where he was meeting with Rong Yiren, who uh, was the director of CIDIC, which is uh, China's main uh, state-run, obviously, investment firm. Um, and they were cutting deals to basically get China involved in the international financial banking architecture, which then laid the groundwork for those investments in the 90s that then has since that point allowed these types of incredibly dense networks of association to 
invest in China in various ways. And you raise the specter of the Carlyle Group, for example, and other other um, firms like this that should be, I hope, well known to people who are researchers in the reality space, not the conspiracy space, the reality mm -hmm. space. Um, but it, it again, it goes to show that this is an international um, corporate web that has been woven around this and that operates through a number of trusts, groups, scholarships, foundations. Of course, it is always framed in uh, the most positive way possible, but has a dark agenda. And that goes back to what you were saying. We think, we tend to think when we hear Wall Street, we tend to think something to do with bank and finance and it's in New York. It is an international, essentially it is a privatized intelligence um, intelligence arm of the deep state, uh, essentially. It's not beholden mm -hmm. to U.S. national interests per se. It is its own um, entity. And that's, uh, I think, exemplified in something like Kroll. Um, yes. Private Wall Street. I was private just thinking of them. <laughs> owned <laughs> by AIG yeah. until they sold it to Martian McLennan um, so that the C then CEO of uh, Kroll could become the CEO of Martian McLennan, uh, Michael Tchaikovsky could become the CEO of Marshall McLennan when it was under investigation by New York Attorney General Elliot Spitzer, who got his start through Michael Tchaikovsky. Um, Richard Grove has outlined those kinds of connections that go back to 9-11 and mm -hmm. then the crisis leading up to the 2008 bailout. Again, there's such an incredibly dense web here that's woven around these characters like Maurice Greenberg, who sits on the U.S.-China Business Relations Council and all of these sorts of things. Council so on Foreign many Relations. relations going yeah. back to that nexus. Right, absolutely. Um, so I think one, uh, it, before we move on more to the the present and, and a lot of what you brought up, though, it, it is really important to point out a lot of the players that you just brought up, like you were saying, uh, have a lot to do with 9-11 leading up to the 2008 financial crisis and a lot of these so-called new China uh, whisperers, uh, particularly uh, those involved with what uh, is called the Bloomberg New Economy Forum, which is sort of like a China-focused World Economic Forum uh, competitor. Uh, a lot of them have ties specifically to the 2008 financial crisis, um, and it says so in their bios on the on the on the site. We can take a look at that uh, later. But um, one thing I, I, I think that is really important to touch on in in this type of conversation. Um, so, uh, you know, in the beginning, um, I brought up how, you know, on the, on the left, on the right, there's sort of these, uh, two extreme counter narratives that have sort of come even in independent media to sort of dominate the discussion. And at the heart of that, you know, is this claim that, um, China's communist and China's socialist, but really there's a lot of capitalism, uh, in China. I think, uh, if you look objectively at it, um, it's quite clear there's lots of billionaires in China for a country that's ostensibly, um, communist. So um, the origins of that to an extent have to do with a group that you have talked about, uh, that you talked about in your documentary, and you've also talked about since. Uh, sometimes they're called the Red Nobility, sometimes they're called the Eight Immortals and their progeny. Uh, could you explain that a little bit uh, and their significance? Absolutely. So this is an incredibly important part of this story, and you're exactly right to focus in on this, because the real transition um, to, from anything resembling some sort of, you know, communist system towards what we see today operating in China took place in the 70s under Deng Xiaoping, the capitalist rotors who started the transformation of the Chinese economy into what it is today, which is obviously state controlled top to bottom, but is not 
socialism or communism or anything of the sort. It is absolute, well, it's techno technocracy ultimately at its base. But you're right, there's this group of wealthy families that were supporters of, um, of Mao um, back in the days of the revolution who ended up becoming the basis for the quasi, the state-run capitalist um, enterprises that have branched out and have made these people's families enormously wealthy. And we know a great deal about this in a great degree of detail because of an incredible series of reports that was reported by Bloomberg back in the day. Uh, I know, please be incredulous, but I invite you to go and actually read the reports. For example, they had a report on heirs of Mao's comrades rise as new capitalist nobility back in 2012, I believe. And uh, that, that report reads that the family's wealth these families, these eight families, wealth traces back to a gamble taken by General Wang and a group of battle-hardened revolutionaries who are revered in China as the eight immortals. Backing Deng Xiaoping two years after Mao's death in 1976, they wagered that opening China to the outside world would raise living standards while avoiding social upheaval that would threaten the Communist Party's grip on power. So they make the, the deal with the devil, as it were, to sell out their communist principles for um, moolah. But don't worry. Uh, the rising tide raises all boats. So yes, we're going to get enormously wealthy first, but everyone else will kind of come afterwards or something along those lines. <laughs> it's very Reagan-esque now. <laughs> <laughs> it's, it's an interesting ideology, but it clearly speaks to the, uh, the, 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 the mindset. At, at any rate, whatever the eight immortals themselves, so-called, um, um, actually thought, their descendants have essentially taken it as the green light to begin um, partying it up. Um, like it's like it's going out of style. Um, so Bloomberg continued on with that reporting. They had this infographic mapping China's red nobility. They did some extensive reporting on it until, until guess who stepped in and quashed that investigation? Well, I mean, it was an entire team of editors and, and uh, publishers and everyone, but obviously Michael Bloomberg himself, a great degree of his 50 billion plus estimated net worth comes from the selling of Bloomberg terminals which is access to essentially market data and what have you, that at that time, specifically in the early 20-teens, um, um, Bloomberg was very much set on China as a major target for their um, um, customer base, essentially. So they were getting tapped on the shoulder by the Chinese Communist Party that was not liking this particular reporting. One of the reporters even had to move to Hong Kong because he was getting death threats, etc. So um, they came in and squashed that. And that's that's even admitted. I mean, there's, again, mainstream news, actually reporting news, but you can read about that in a fascinating piece from, I know you won't believe it, NPR of all places. Um, <laughs> Bloomberg News killed investigation, fired reporter, then sought to silence his wife that goes through the story and how it was quashed, etc. But it goes right to the heart of this issue that we're dealing with, these eight immortal families and and how they have become this incredibly rich and powerful class that you can't even talk about in China, um, it, in a remarkably similar way to the way that the uh, the real upper class aristocracy functions in the deep state in the U.S. and everywhere else. It's almost like it's an interconnected system that functions pretty much the same in every every country in the world, despite whatever labels we attach to their governments. Right. Good point. So um, I want to go back a little bit to the um, the Rockefellers. Um, 
so, you know, I'm not necessarily an, an expert on, on the Rockefellers, but I am familiar with some of the things they, they sought to influence and change, uh, particularly in American society. Um, so, for example, in, in education, uh, you know, there was an, a desire by them to shape education to prepare a new generation of factory workers and to not necessarily create the best education system in the U.S. from the from you know, the perspective of, of furthering academia and learning and what have you, but creating good workers, right? Um, and it seems like a lot of their influence on China, since they, you know, China opened up and the Rockefellers became even more involved than they were uh, before, has really allowed them to have a much even larger uh, playground for those types of ideas, not just in education, but maybe um, you know, in other in other settings as well. Um, uh, and of course, uh, <clears throat> for people that have been reading Unlimited Hangout recently, uh, John Kleesak's been doing some work on, on ed tech specifically and how a lot of that is being, um, though he's been focusing on it within the US, um, it's quite clear that China's education system right now, for example, you know, that a lot of kids have to wear, little kids have to wear like headsets uh, and, you know, it's data mining kids for artificial intelligence and all of this stuff. And this seems to be something uh, that's sort of been guided by, um, uh, I guess you could say Silicon Valley, but also, you know, American oligarchs going back, uh, you know, back to the Rockefellers, really, and some other ones as well. Do you have any thoughts on that? I don't I Right. Well, uh, let me underline and stress once again, the Rockefeller Foundation has been intimately involved in China since at least 1914 with the, the development of the China Medical Board. And specifically, their first forays there were about um, Chinese um, medical uh, culture, medical colleges, creating a medical education system that would treat, treat um, teach uh, the Chinese on Western um, allopathic medicine, um, trying to export Rockefeller medicine to China, essentially. And having been largely successful in doing so, setting up the uh, Peking Union uh, Medical College and other such things in 1917. Um, but of course, it greatly expanded from there and has continued and persisted. And people might wonder why, particularly what's the connection. And part of that is revealed. I, I often go back to um, Rockefeller's um, Ode to Mao uh, on his death um, that was published in the New York Times in 1973 from a China traveler where he called the social experiment under Mao, uh, one of the most important and successful in history. But he also wrote that the Chinese, for their part, are faced with altering a primarily inward focus that they have pursued for a quarter century under their current leadership. We, for our part, are faced with the realization that we have largely ignored a country with one-fourth of the world's population. When one considers the profound differences in our cultural heritage and our social and economic systems, this is certain to be a long task, with much accommodation necessary on both sides. And I think this goes back to the driving quest of the Rockefeller family in particular, but the Rothschilds and all of the other major players that we've talked about so far, which is the standardization, homogenization, globalization is not just some sort of term. It is not, it's not just a name. It truly means the creation of a global financial architecture, which will be the basis for a form of global governance, however that ends up looking. And I don't think that necessarily looks like a one world government at any time in the near future. In fact, it may be more beneficial for groups like this to create a system whereby you have a tripartite world structure or something along those lines where there appear to be rivalries at various levels of the system, but there's a deeper reality underneath. And that's something that I've tried to stress in my work um, over the last several years, trying to expand this conversation be between, as you identify quite rightly, the, the xenophiles and the xenophobes, 
that are increasingly dominating this conversation. China is the great evil. They are responsible for everything uh, versus China is wonderful and puppy dogs and rainbows and they're investing all around the world and isn't, isn't everything happy. Um, there isn't a level of 3D chess taking place here. And I know post-Trump, <laughs> that is, a, that is a, a tainted phrase to use, but it's one that I use advisedly because I was using it before Trump. Um, I mentioned it in China and the New World Order. I expanded on that in a recent editorial that I'll direct your listeners' attention to because I think it's important how to play 3D chess, where I, that's my best articulation of this idea that there really are multiple levels of what's going on here. And there is, of course, there is a nation state system where nation states are being pitted against each other, but that is not the full story. And the way I see it, you have the collaborationists that are working at the deeper level, the, the mm -hmm. Rockefellers, the Kissingers, the Rothschilds, the Paulsons, other people like this, Bloomberg and others, who are part of this international financial architecture that's being woven with China as a key element in it. You also have the Cold Warriors, who I think genuinely believe what they're saying. Um, the uh, CIA director, uh, William Burns, you have uh, US Air Force Chief of Staff, uh, David Goldfein, you have Christopher Ray, former FBI director and others who, who come out with these warnings, China is the biggest threat. And there is a large extent to which these people might actually believe that. But I think they are being used by the collaborationists in the greater game, which yeah. is for control of the global financial architecture that's being woven. Yes, China will be dealt a hand at this poker table, but who's going to get the winning hand? And I think that's the sort of level at which the real conflict is taking place. I would actually add another class to that as well uh, that's exemplified by uh, Eric Schmidt, the former head of Google, who publicly claims to oppose China and, oh, they're a national security threat because of how far they've advanced in AI. But really, if you look at his actions, he's a total collaborationist. Um, yeah. And totally uh, that's, on board that's with that. What, that's kind of my point. The collaborationists use the Cold Warriors that, and use right, their okay. narrative to for, forward their own agenda. Right. Yeah. But I, I think there's some that, like you said, are cold warriors and they totally believe China is a threat. And then there are some who posture that way because it, it makes it, it sounds nicer than, you know, the I guess the alternative for their particular agendas to say so, but are in reality collaborationists and and whatnot. But I think um, the the power structure to which the world is attempting to be led right now is to, is this collaborationist one that you mentioned of sort of this power sharing agreement, maybe we can call it, uh, between the U.S. and China and this Bloomberg uh, New Economy uh, Forum uh, seeks to promote that. And that's actually hosted by Mike Bloomberg, uh, uh, chaired by Henry Paulson, and uh, the, the head of it is Henry Kissinger. So you have them like all there um, together. And basically, you know, as Kissinger uh, phrases it, it's either we collaborate like this and we make this globalist power sharing agreement with China or nuclear war and we'll all die. So you decide what, what you want, little people, um, <laughs> which obviously isn't um, a fair choice. Um, but it, it's, of course, you know, Henry Kissinger, uh, despite his litany of, of crimes and scumminess, is still very uh, well respected uh, in elite foreign policy circles in the U.S. and elsewhere, um, and also within China. So this is definitely, um, you know, there's a, there's an effort here uh, to lead the U.S. that way. Um, <clears throat> one particular um, piece of focus in that particular agenda has to do with tech and AI. Um, Eric Schmidt being uh, part of the National Security Commission on AI, chairing that um, with a former Department of Defense guy, 
uh, under Obama and essentially, you know, they publicly say we have to counter China by doing this, that and this. Um, but if you read their their documents, as I um, talked about in a report last year, they're essentially collaborationists as well and 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 quote Kissinger and in their documents and all of that. And they use the fear mongering to say, in order to beat China, we have to become China and then we must collaborate and power share with them uh, on the road to global governance. So uh, let, let me throw in a reference that I, I was just looking at that's absolutely right along these lines. It was uh, by David Ignatius in the Washington Post last year. Uh, yes, David Ignatius, the even other mainstream, lamestream reporters call him the mainstream um, apologist for the CIA. So it <laughs> gives you a sense of where he comes from. But um, he had a, a post up, an opinion post, uh, decoupling the U.S. from China would backfire, where he's quoting um, uh, various experts like Jason Matheny, a former director of IARPA, who contributed to a report that was issued yes. for the Working Group on Science and Technology in U.S.-China Relations, sponsored by the University of California, San Diego, and the Asia Society, all groups that deserve further scrutiny, that was saying that China is closing the gap in technology when it comes to this AI type of stuff, but the U.S. can widen its lead if it adopts the right policies, and it's exactly framing it in that way. We don't want to break with China because that could be disastrous. We want to you know, work with them. And, and we don't worry, we'll come out on top, guys, as long as we keep collaborating. Yeah, uh, just to add it, because you brought up and we're approaching uh, 20 years of uh, anthrax as well. Jason Matheny uh, worked pretty closely with the Dark Winter co-authors, Tara O'Toole and, and Thomas Inglesby for a time. So not only is he, you know, intelligence community and now national security on AI, he's also uh, has his hand in that pie, as is often the case with the uh, the people we really should be paying attention to in U.S. government who never really get any coverage. Yep. I didn't even uh, know that connection, but it doesn't surprise me in the least. Uh, yeah, you know, uh, there, there's some connections that you wish weren't there, but, you know, whatever. So <laughs> um, anyway, so basically what we have there with the AI thing um, in one sense uh, is is used uh, sort of by these, these transnational tech companies in a sense for what is essentially tech transfer uh, between the U.S. and China. And you've written about another type of transfer that's gone on, particularly the military tech transfer um, between the U.S. and China. Of course, this has been framed uh, by the media when it's been reported on um, as intellectual property theft by China. Uh, but you contend, uh, and this, of course, would fit in the context of everything else we've discussed uh, thus far, that this is more of a planned transfer and has some parallels uh, with uh, the underreported history of what took place during the previous uh, Cold War uh, with the Soviet Union. So would you mind elaborating on that a little bit? Uh, gladly, yes. It's such an important part, an aspect of this story. And you're right. I did write a report um, on China's suspiciously American arsenal, where not only writing about, but actually showing examples of essentially the exact same U.S. military systems are popping up in China. And, you know, I mean, you can look at them side by side. They're virtually identical, right down to the, the even the design of uh, the exterior of these various um MQ-8 Fire Scout Unmanned Hello um, from the uh, the Chinese, uh, sort of from Northrop Grumman versus the Sunward SVU-200 Flying Tiger from the CCP. Or, I mean, there's, there's no end of examples of that type of uh, technology transfer that absolutely is going on. It is being largely facilitated by 
the convenient middleman cutout that has been used in these operations in the past, um, like with Iran, um, Israel, of course, uh, mm -hmm. it goes through it goes through Israel, which has been well reported on. Uh, Israel's second largest trading partner is China. Um, in fact, jumping from um, uh, over 200 times between 1992 and 2017, now trade volume is $11 billion as of 2017. But um, this goes way back. It's been reported over and over again from military.com in 2013. Report, Israel passes U.S. military technology to China. Um, 2004, U.S. anger at Israel weapons sale from our good friends at the BBC, uh, also Asia Times, U.S. up in arms over Sino-Israel ties. 1996, um, U.S. military technology sold by Israel to China upsets Asian power balance. Talking about Israel's Lavi fighter bomber was designed to be one of the deadliest weapons in the air. However, it now has been revealed that after the Is Israel discontinued the largely U.S.-funded project, it sold China the plans for the Lavi and the associated secret U.S. technology. CIA officials specializing in aviation technology were stunned at the 3D images generated by the computers. Um, China's newest fighter jet was, in fact, a copy of the Israeli Lavi, which itself was modeled upon the U.S. F-16 Fighting Falcon multi-role aircraft. And I have other examples um, that are just almost funny, I suppose. Um, uh, for example, you can look at, uh, there's actual uh, video footage that's been released by the Chinese military of some of their state-of-the-art cutting-edge um, uh, drones and uh, naval vessels and other things that show some of the screens that are operating on these various technologies that have English <laughs> as their default language. And even, even yellow journalist uh, uh, Popular Mechanics had to put it that it begs the question whether or not software and other technology originally from the United States and other Western countries is flying on Chinese military aircraft. Yeah, you don't say. Yeah, it's absolutely going on. The only part of this story that is in any way sort of under the table, as I say, it's even being reported in military.com, Israel is passing U.S. military technology to China. Yeah, of course, it's happening out in the open. So why is it a shock every time it's revealed? It's because this is part of the long-term game plan. And you cannot understand that long-term game plan or how it functions without looking at the history of how this has functioned in the past. And in China and the New World Order, I cited the work of Anthony Sutton, um, specifically his scholarly research into this in the early 1970s before he got essentially kicked out of academia for doing research that even Zbigniew Brzezinski cited and name-checked and said, you know, this is really good scholarly research on te military technology on um, transfers to the Soviet Union that were happening at the height of the Cold War. And all of this American military technology and um, various Ford technology and other such things ends up on all of these Soviet um, weapon systems and military um, implements that then get used against American soldiers in Korea and other, I mean, things like this that happen over and over that sudden cited and, and track the various payments and how the technology transfers work. It's the exact same thing. And I think for the exact same reason, it is the creation of the boogeyman in order to justify the, oh my God, there's a boogeyman. Well, now we have to go crazy fighting the boogeyman. And that's exactly what's happening. I see it even here in Japan, where now the uh, Japanese government is requesting the largest ever military budget in its history on the back of, of course, the China threat, because China is the growing military presence. Um, there's a certain logic to it. You can't argue. Yes, they are a growing military presence. But why? Why? Uh, how have they leapfrogged every other nation to become this great competitor? 
with America for um, military pr predominance? Well, there's uh, several reasons, all of which tend to point back to the same group of interconnected financial and military planners in, in the West. What you touched on uh, with Israel, I think is really important because pulling on that thread of the Israel tech transfer role completely demolishes a, a lot of the China hawk talk on the right, uh, because a lot of those people at the same time uh, very aggressively uh, support US military aid to Israel and military tra transfer to Israel, but are also unwilling to point out that the, the, this, uh, these, these transfers and these connections between Israel and China that are, are going on. And the fact that that is pretty much never talked about on the right, I think illustrates uh, the, the, some of the points we're exploring here that there are deeper and uh, deeper power structures at work. And that's really where the power here uh, lies essentially and people are intentionally being kept really at a superficial level um, in order to avoid really understanding uh, the, the deeper stuff at work here. So um, I guess from that point, it makes sense to maybe explore a little bit some of the, uh, this, the, the, this transnational elite, uh, what goals they have when it comes to China, why do they want the rise of China, um, and uh, you know why have uh, China emerge as this military superpower with their help um, and, and things like that. What role is China set to have in the new global economy? Uh, why does it need to happen this way, et cetera? Is that a question? Uh, uh, I'm sorry, I should have probably it. phrase it. Uh, <laughs> well, <laughs> more as a question, but yeah, I think let, it's- um, Let's put it know. this way. Um, I will go back to the clip that I played in China and the New World Order of an interviewer asking Antony Sutton about this. Okay, you've laid out all this information about how the Soviet Union was built up by Western financial interests. Like, why? What What are they doing? And so the uh, the interviewer says, just tell us all over again, why? And Antony Sutton says, why? You won't find it in the textbooks. Why is to bring about, I suspect, a plan to control world society in which you and I won't find the freedoms to believe and think and do as we believe, um, which is is it in a nutshell. I mean, it isn't extremely difficult to wrap your head around this unless you have been indoctrinated your entire life, like we all have, to believe in the nation state game that is being played and believe that that is the full totality of what is happening. No, there is a class that truly considers themselves to be above us. Um, that That is the foundation of the eugenics ideology that you and I have talked about. And they genuinely believe that they have the right to control the globe, essentially. And the way to do that is to construct um, a, a system of thesis and antithesis that leads to a preordained synthesis. That was what the, the, the West versus the Soviet Union in the Cold War was about, was to merge those systems together closer and closer. And that is what China is, the role China is going to take in the 21st century. And that's, I think that's evident. That's obvious to see. And we can put that back to um, uh, a Rockefeller's words in From a China Traveler, calling Mao's uh, social experiment one of the most important and successful in human history. What, what experiment exactly? Authoritarian control over a quarter of the world's population, as it was at the time. That, that's a pretty important um, aspect of this. And we see that taking place. I, I talked about it earlier. If we had to label, really name the operating governance of China. It isn't communist, of course. It is technocratic. Um, they are bringing in the perfect system of technocratic control over a billion plus people um, in ways that are 
I, I would like to say scarcely imaginable, but of course now we all see it being implemented in our home countries wherever you are listening to me. The, the facial recognition systems tied into the uh, national police databases that in real time can track anyone in the country and what they're doing um, and have incredible control over everything that's being said. That is the system that is lusted after by the very people who are now building China up to be the boogeyman that then we well, I mean, they're they're getting ahead of us in AI and these other things. We're gonna have to we're gonna have to be a little bit more like them in order to beat them at this game. And that's why I've I've noted it time and time again. But I want people to consciously note it when they see it. The type of propaganda we see, um, specific, specifically from the erstwhile supposedly xenophobic media, which points to China as oh look at these horrible things that they're doing to in their uh, to their populations. But there's always a note of dot dot dot. But wouldn't it be nice if we could do that? And we've especially seen that over the past eighteen months because China yeah. handled the scamdemic so beautifully and they did so well because they can do anything they want to their population at any time. And look, they had the QR codes operating in weeks. We've taken all this time and we're just starting to talk about vaccine. Oh come on, we can we can move this forward, right? Yeah, they like to add this this caveat. Well, we could have tried those same surveillance blah 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 policies here, but we have democratic values that makes us different, and so we'll do it better than them because of our values and all this stuff. Which, man, if you're watching uh, this and, and believe that um, you may have uh, meant to have tuned into the Washington Post podcast <laughs> or something like that, yeah. uh, you are in the <laughs> you are likely in the in the wrong place, uh, unfortunately. So um, <clears throat> I guess there's a couple different places uh, that, that we could go to now, but before uh, we move on in terms of potential um, you know, goals of, of why build up China, I think there's also, um, you know, why make China such the economic, uh, make it the economic powerhouse it is. And we have a reality where uh, most countries in the world are dependent on some degree to goods produced in China. Um, and if you have that level of economic dependency, uh, that gives China a lot of leverage. Um, uh, and, you know, maybe it hasn't happened yet, but, you know, with the, the climate change e economy uh, makeover that's coming, China could demand that, uh, I don't know, countries that buy their exports on which they have become dependent must do this, that and this, things like that. Um, when you're in that type of situation of dependency to think that, uh, this type of uh, elite that also has its hand in in, in the pies of uh, the levers of Chinese economic power when it use that at their disposal, I think may be uh, a wee bit naive, but <laughs> it remains to be seen. Uh, as you know, we we uh, according to Klaus Schwab's predictions in January of this year, you know, we'll be transitioning out of COVID and into climate change uh, by the end of this year, and he seems pretty on point. Uh, th thus far, it definitely seems to be uh, moving in that direction and the, the role China has to play in that and new green finance um, and all of that, I think, will be quite uh, telling as, as we move on. Um, so um, one thing I do want to bring up, and I, I may screen share for this to, to, just to show some examples, um, is sort of this, uh, I guess you could call it, um, well, we've already talked about it a couple times, these two extreme narratives um, that are particularly common uh, these days in independent media, um, unfortunately, um, <clears throat> uh, about you know these, these extreme views of um, on China that lose a lot of the nuance and a lot of the things we've been talking about or ignore. Um, 
ignore them completely um, and you know how we can uh, I want to get some of your thoughts on maybe how we can combat some of these um, <clears throat> extreme narratives so I'll just show a couple uh, examples for um, <clears throat> uh, people that may be interested in uh, and what exactly I am talking about. So I don't mean to dunk on my former employer. Uh, they did have a, uh, <clears throat> Mint Press News, they did have a uh, quite lengthy uh, editor's note disclaimer at the beginning. Uh, so, you know, I'll leave it at that. Um, but essentially, you know, there are some people, particularly this particular uh, author writing op-eds there um, who, uh, if you read down, essentially goes on to try and uh, frame uh, people who oppose uh, gain-of-function <laughs> research um, as Orientalist, uh, racist, and ignorant, among other things. Uh, he dunked, spends a lot of time dunking on uh, Sam Husseini, um, who I personally think has done uh, really great work, and in a more recent piece, uh, the same author um, goes into some... Uh, discussion. I don't know if I highlighted it he or here or not, um, <laughs> but I mean, it's a it's a little absurd in the sense that it claims that gain of function. Um, if you oppose gain of function research, um, you are Orientalist and racist. Uh, this is also found in another piece um, on this uh, particular uh, website as well. Uh, essentially, framing it as Orientalism, and uh, you know, I honestly doubt that these same individuals would make that um, <clears throat> particular case um, if we were talking about Fort Detrick, for example. Uh, it seems to be, um, you know, a, a defense of a particular class of research only because it's taking place in uh, China. Um, but of course, uh, what these people, uh, particularly the individual dunking, trying to dunk on Sam Husseini, uh, they fail completely to mention that Sam Husseini's most important, well, arguably, one of his most important articles on gain of function in the last year was about uh, the Pentagon funding of EcoHealth Alliance and Pentagon ties to the Wuhan Institute of uh, Virology, uh, which again speaks to the sort of transnational uh, issue here, and it's, you know, being obfuscated because it doesn't fit in the particular uh, narrative um, <clears throat> of this individual. But this, um, you know, is obviously a counter narrative uh, that developed to, sorry, just give me one second, um, to uh, things like this, like the Epoch Times, uh, which of course calls the, calls COVID-19 the CCP virus, looks like I got paywalled <laughs> by these guys, but, you know, Breitbart uh, similarly talking about CCP control over the Wuhan lab. Um, it took them quite a long time uh, to uh, acknowledge the Pentagon ties, and even then it was kind of um, a footnote, and they didn't properly cite Sam, uh, <laughs> you know, but um, I don't know. It seems like one sort of a reaction to the other and one sort of a reaction to uh, the Cold War mentality uh, coming back for, uh, you know, we uh, the, the nationalist uh, perspective of, oh, first it was, you know, during the Cold War, Russia's bad, now it's China bad and and, and whatnot. Uh, so any any thoughts on this and how we can combat well, these? Yeah, you you bring out the important you bring out the important point here, which is that, yeah, the excluded part of this conversation, as always, is the operative part in the exact same way as the military technology and, and other technology transfers to China 
wow, they're so powerful all of a sudden. How did that happen? Report after report after report after report of this technology being transferred to China. Oh, wow, shocking. I can't believe gambling is going on in this establishment in the exact same way um, to look at Wuhan Institute of Virology as if it was some self-contained thing that the Chinese government set up on its own and was completely doing it all by itself is just such, it's not just nonsense, it's deliberate misrepresentation. There's no way that that could not be misrepresentation. Now to be as generous as I possibly can with the people calling any anything about WIV, looking at that as is Orientalism. And I, I understand the misgiving about the narrative that clearly is underway right now. It is clearly mm -hmm. being weaponized by people with shady interests and agendas um, to call this the CCP virus and to blame everything on Wuhan and to say it all originated there. And that's what's the, you know, the evil here is the Chinese government, because clearly that is being weaponized in the narrative to gin yeah. up at the very least the, the Cold War, um, the Cold Warriors will latch onto as part of their agenda. So I understand the misgivings about that, but it is the wrong take to say, oh, it's racist to talk about gain of function research. No, the correct take is to fill in all of the missing blanks exactly as you did. Um, when the US government outlawed the gain of function research, they outsourced it through the EcoHealth Alliance and Peter Azak, um, who then started funding what was going on in Wuhan and publishing those types of papers. And Peter Daszak, of course, is the one that comes out saying, it's crazy conspiracy theory to talk about lab leak and gain of function. Um, so whether these people who are writing these articles know it or not, they are defending those people and their research. What type of research? Well, of course, let's look at someone like Charles Lieber, who of course gets arrested for being part of the Thousand Talents program while he's double dipping from the US side um, for his research, which he was, of course, as you know, co-researching with Robert Langer, mm -hmm. co-founder of Moderna, looking at various ways that they can monitor people's um, heart uh, by bio implants from, from far away, literally co-writing papers with each other on things like this. None of that will be looked into by any of these players, the sinophobes or the sinophiles, because that just completely disrupts the narrative and shows once again, there's a much deeper layer at which this is going on. And it points in the same direction of um, international interests that are collaborating on things that are close and near and dear to the heart of the elitists everywhere, which goes back to things like the transhuman agenda. Right, great point. So uh, I think we're definitely in agreement uh, there. Though I just I just have to say, um, just so it's clear, um, I, I don't care if this particular author thinks gain of function is fine when it happens at, at Wuhan, uh, in Wuhan or whatever. Uh, he claims that there is a real line between biodefense and biowarfare. Um, we are coming up 20 years on the anthrax attacks. Please, uh, if you're watching this, get familiar with the fact that when it comes to um, US military connected entities, including the Wuhan lab, um, there is really no line <laughs> and they abuse it regularly. And to say that there's good gain of function research means that you're not properly, in my opinion, um, accounting for the risks. Um, last year, I wrote about um, a gain of function experiment that was approved uh, at the University of Pittsburgh to combine uh, SARS-CoV-2 with anthrax, supposedly for the purpose of creating a COVID vaccine when there's already like, a, uh, I think like 190 vaccine candidates around the world, not counting those that have been um, approved or whatever. Do we really need to buy, combine coronavirus with anthrax? What if that escapes? 
Is that a good idea? Um, I think most sane people would say no. Um, I think uh, what's happened here, uh, it, unfortunately, is a case of someone getting uh, triggered uh, by some sort of, you know, reactionary, uh, you know, uh, narratives. Uh, it's unfortunate. Uh, so anyway, uh, <clears throat> to, to move into uh, probably our, our last uh, uh, little part of this uh, discussion today, unless there's anything after you'd like to add. Um, of course, this boils down to, um, will there be a war between the U.S. and China? Um, of course, you know, there have been these same hidden hands of Wall Street and international power structures at work uh, before previous world wars, uh, which were hot wars, of course, and then they were also there during the Cold War. Um, how will this particular um, uh, conflict that's being engineered between the U.S. and China go. Um, of course, I'm sure people are wondering your thoughts on that, so we might as well uh, conclude with the uh, potential doom and gloom. Um, I'll, I'll throw it to you. This is the one of the most important questions, isn't it? Is it all smoke and mirrors? Is it all for show? It's all Cold War 2.0. It will be just like the Soviet Union. They'll use it as the boogeyman for as long as they can, ride that, for their, you know, to line their pockets and then it'll it'll go away in the end. Well, it could. Um, it could eventuate into hot war and I leave that option on the table. I'm not going to bow out by saying, well, I don't have a crystal ball so I can't tell, obviously. But I think it's not just that um, I can't tell, it's that it isn't determined yet. I think whatever will be most efficient for these elitists to get their way in their unfolding plan will be what they go with. So I don't think it's necessarily set in stone or determined yet exactly how all of this is going to play out. But the idea of hot war is one that is clearly up the sleeve and could take place. And I've made this point before. I, I think I've articulated it most clearly in a questions for Corbett I did called how will World War III be fought? Where I answered that question, what, what do you think World War III would look like? And I talk about the, the fact that World War I was from our vantage point today, it is difficult to understand how utterly fracturing of, of people's psyche that war was because it completely obliterated previous notions of what warfare was, how it was engaged, what kind of effects it had on the civilian population, etc. It completely changed the paradigm of war itself. And World War II, again, was another fracture point that completely changed what war, how warfare was experienced and what it looked like and what it was capable of, obviously ending with the, the atomic bombings. And so World War III, I cannot possibly say what a hot war at this point would look like, pr primarily because we do not know all of the technology that is operable at this point. Of course, every side has layers and layers and layers of secrecy behind which they hide their latest instruments. Don't worry, guys, the SR-71 is, is clearly the highest uh, altitude plane we have in function. And, the fastest here. Yeah, it's 50-year-old technology. Yeah, you really think so? No, of course not. It's hidden by, behind secrecy. So we cannot know precisely what that will look like. But it will, again, be paradigm-changing, fracturing of the psyche, and probably, unfortunately, an order of magnitude more in terms of um, destruction and death um, than it would have been in World War II. So it is an option on the table. But the point that I end up stressing at the latter half of that questions for Corbett that I referenced that I hope people will watch if they're interested. I stress that World War III is already engaged. The operative, the real World War III is the war against us. And I mean all of us that are not in this power pyramid, that are not collaborationists in the deep state working on this international level. 
just the average folks. We are the target. We are victims, uh, whether we know it or not, of a war that is being waged against us by our own governments, whatever that means. Again, the nation state system that we think is operative isn't really the operative one, but we are the targets of this elitist class and it is already happening. Information warfare is the most obvious form of that, but all sorts of other warfare, including, of course, the genetic uh, engineering of the, the crops and, and other such things that uh, the, the deployment of 5G and all of these other ways that various things that are being sold to us as products even that we will then consume are in fact being weaponized against us. And well, let's put it this way, could be used in case any bad person ever got into power, could be used against us <laughs> at a moment to, um, to kill or enslave many, many, many people. That is actually the, the fight that we are in. So we tend to think of world war, of course, in terms of the big geopolitical nation state conflicts. But again, I don't think that's the level at which it's actually operating. All right. Yeah. Uh, you brought up a lot of really good points. Uh, I think the info warfare thing is really key. I mean, obviously, that's uh, the the battlefield on which you and I <laughs> you and I fight. Right. And so that's why I think it's so um, important to have a discussion like this and counter uh, the really extreme narratives that obviously play into the hands of people that want to drive us uh, to that point. I also want to underscore, too, that people should keep in mind, particularly on uh, the right, uh, that, uh, as you pointed out, this is a war of the elite against us, and that includes also the people of China, the general public of China, are also being targeted with a lot of these same uh, techniques, and some of it is a lot more advanced over there, but we need to keep in mind that it's the little people of the world, all of us, against this particular uh, behemoth uh, power structure. Um, and uh, in terms of probability of war, I kind of want to take it back to the, uh, the I guess you could call it the Kissinger threat. I don't really know what else to call it. And sorry to laugh. Um, it's just, um, it's very, it's very uh, awful, you know, what and nightmarish what it says. But, you know, when like this 95 year old blob is, is like issuing these threats to the world, I mean, it's, uh, it's, it's, it's comical in a sense. Um, but essentially, uh, I think what that Kissinger threat boils down to is, well, you can either collaborate and, and the little people can agree to go into this world we're creating for them, or there will be resistance and uh, there will be nuclear war uh, and you'll all be blown to smithereens. I mean, that's uh, the threat. And I think, honestly, the point we're at is uh, to call their, their bluff, really, because, I mean, I don't think they necessarily want the to have to go underground into these elite bomb shelters for too long, as would be the case if it really was sort of like a nuclear <clears throat> war scenario. But that seems to sort of be the uh, the threat. Either there'll be this awful war, hot war with the U.S. and China, or the U.S. and China can work together uh, in this, this globalist power structure. I don't know if that's necessarily a threat being leveled at the little people or people that they need to collaborate within the governments of the U.S., uh, in China, quite possibly, it's just the latter. Um, <clears throat> but it remains uh, it remains to be seen. Uh, of course, there's a special place in hell for Kissinger. That's why uh, you haven't been able to see it, uh, people watching. But my hell is patient Henry Kissinger t-shirt um, seemed appropriate uh, for today because he is uh, definitely, uh, you know, done plenty. And hopefully he'll He'll be next. <laughs> uh, we'll see. Anyway, um, 
is there anything else you'd like to um, add uh, before we, we wrap up here um, that we haven't covered yet? There's a million things that should be covered. I and one thing so, that I'll but... put out there for your audience um, as sort of a research project for anyone who's interested in researching further in this, I think there deserves to be deep dives on all of these different types of institutions that are coming up in our conversation, talking about the Working Group on Science and Technology in U.S.-China relations, talking about the Asia Society, talking about the Bloomberg New Economy Forum, and all of these different pieces of the puzzle, uh, the Bergruen Institute, the Bergruen China Center, uh, an interesting player that keeps coming up. So people who are interested could research that further. But let me just summarize then with what I take to be the, the takeaway of our conversation, which is the sinophiles uh, and the sinophobes are both wrong um, because they, they are operating on that level at, at which the nation state system is the, is the operative paradigm, but it is not. So yes, the Chinese government is bad and they are doing horrible things to their people. Absolutely, 100%. But opposing that is not, Oh, okay, well, then the U.S. government or someone should go in and rain bombs down on those people in order to liberate them from their government. No, there is a much deeper level at which this is taking place. And we are all victims of that same war that's going on. And it is taking place at a different level that's being funded um, by people like the Kissingers. I mean, Kissinger's just in sort of well, one one player in a much bigger agenda. Oh, that gives you a sense of where this is coming from. Mm-hmm. Yeah, well, another point you brought up earlier, too, is that this war is happening, this hybrid war against the people, right, is happening right now. And so we can't afford to continue to uh, exist in, in world or to, to, to have worldviews where we're not really recognizing the real power structures driving this. Um, it's time to move past this um, superficial level of nation state stuff. It's really imperative that we move beyond that in order to see uh, the ruse here and where we're being led, what the goals are and what the end game is, uh, essentially. And if we stay at this nation state level and we and, and people, as many people as there are now trapped in these counter narratives uh, on both the left and the right, I think it's uh, way past time uh, to, to try and push uh, people nicely if you can, um, out of it, because we really need people to start seeing uh, the bigger picture here, because we really are um, in this hybrid war that's uh, trying to force global governance, among other things, um, and all the trappings of that and what that entails um, on people in various ways. Uh, of course, COVID-19 was just really the catalyst uh, for this particular new phase of war. Uh, they're moving it into climate change and all their sorts of things uh, that will be thrown at us now. And the more people resist, the more stuff they will use, uh, hoping that something eventually sticks that seems to be um, where this is going. Uh, also, as you mentioned, this is really a topic that is very hard to cover in like an hour long video. Um, it could probably be uh, multiple hours. Uh, and like you said, I would really encourage people to do deep dives into these organizations because I certainly haven't seen them. And, you know, I think people like you and I have a lot of stuff of our own projects that we're doing trying to cover things. It's already a lot for, you know, what I'm trying to cover for one person. I imagine for you, it's the it's the same. Um, I know that there are people watching who may be interested in doing this. Um, and if you are, maybe uh, reach out. Uh, and, you know, if it's good, you know, you can probably, if Unlimited Hangout won't publish it, maybe I can help you uh, find someone who will if it's, you know, up, 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 to, up to standard. We really need all hands on deck at this point. Um, 
and trying to get this information covered and out, especially in the uh, the censorship environment in which uh, we are living. It's uh, quite likely that will get worse before it gets better. Um, so, James, for people that are more interested in your existing work on this topic, uh, where can they find that information? CorbettReport.com is the one-stop shop to find all of my information. And if there's anything that I've mentioned today, um, when I when I mirror this up on my site, of course, I'll put the links to everything I've mentioned, but it should be easily searchable on my site anyway. Um, there's, I, I've tried to make my site as valuable a resource for researchers as possible. So I always try to link up the documents and things that I'm talking about. And hopefully people will be able to make use of that and start, as I say, with episode 297, China and the New World Order and start to branch out from there. And there's a, a lot of resources on this topic. Great. Well, if you're watching and you enjoyed this video, I would really encourage you to support James's work uh, because he's really the one that a couple years ago when he put out China in the New World Order really brought this to my attention. And I was just amazed. I've never heard this stuff before. And a lot of James's work is like that, if you're not familiar. Uh, very eye-opening uh, and for years has been covering stuff a lot of other people have either missed or uh, declined to cover for whatever reason. So I would definitely encourage people watching to go to Corbett Report dot uh, com consider becoming a subscriber um and uh for those watching uh right now uh or the first to watch this video will of course be subscribers to unlimited hangout uh, and uh greatly appreciate you thanks a lot for that um and but of course this is going to be public uh, just a few days after because i never pay well for very long uh but you know and <laughs> i got just like you james got the platform from patreon so we all have to you know do what we can to keep doing uh this work so um, once this is public, I would really encourage you to share this far and wide so that we can uh, start fighting against this counter narratives. And it really takes all of us. You know, there are people that I guess you could say are more established in this field uh, that have maybe bigger platforms, but really uh, every everything anyone can do is, is needed at this point. Um, so thanks a lot for watching. Thanks a lot for sharing. And thanks a lot for, for those that support our work.